Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and this is an episode in In Conversation, a podcast from Oxford University Press that we, the NBN, produce in conjunction with our friends at Oxford University Press. And today I'm very happy to say we have Spencer McBride on the show, and we'll be talking about his terrific book, Joseph Smith for President, The Prophet, The Assassins, and the Fight for American Religious Freedom. It's just out from Oxford 2021. Welcome to the show, Spencer. Oh, it's good to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. My pleasure. Could you begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, absolutely. I uh, work as the Associate Managing Historian of the Joseph Smith Papers Project, which means I live out in Salt Lake City. I, I was born and raised in California and kind of bounced all over the country for my education, as many of us wandering academics do. But uh, I've made my home here in Utah for the last uh, seven years or so. So the Joseph Smith Papers, that's a very important job. Well, um, if, you'll, if you'll pardon me for saying that's like a super important job. I, I'm thrilled to have it. I mean, the, the, the goal is to publish every surviving document that Joseph Smith wrote or that was written to him. Um, it's a lot of work, but it's pretty cool to be part of such a project. Yeah, that, that's fascinating. I would I would love to talk to you more just about the Joseph Smith project, but we have to talk about your uh, the Joseph Smith archive, but I, we have to talk about your book. So um uh, could you tell me why you wrote Joseph Smith for president and what you were hoping to accomplish with the book? Yeah. So in my, I've always been fascinated with the interplay of religion and American political culture. Yeah. You know, you often, I, I often describe myself as a historian of religion and American politics. I'm probably more squarely on the politics side with the interest in religion and how, how they mix. Um, but when I came to the Joseph Smith papers, the first documents I was assigned to kind of prepare to be transcribed and annotated and published were these political documents. Um, the Mormons in 1838 and 1839 are expelled from Missouri under threat of state-sanctioned extermination. And from that point on, Joseph Smith becomes engaged with federal politics. Uh, in 1839, he makes a trip to Washington, D.C., and he meets with President Martin Van Buren in the White House. He petitions Congress. And so all these documents got me looking at this really interesting trajectory of Joseph Smith's political engagement. He's a reluctant, he's reluctant to engage with the political system. He feels he has to. And it culminates in him running for president. And this is one of those kind of factoids, one of those fun facts, something that could, you know, wow people at dinner parties. If you go to the type of dinner parties I like to go to, (laughs) where where people like fun facts like this, but like, did you know that Joseph Smith ran for president? I didn't. I'll tell you, I didn't. But but, but it's, it's these, it's one of these like little fun fact, historical nuggets. But as I dove into those documents, as I thought about it, it became so much more than that. I began to see these ramifications, these implications of this story um, to help us better understand 19th century America, but in a way that's still quite relevant today. So I wanted to take you know, kind of a fun fact and say, it's more than that. Joseph Smith's presidential campaign uh, is an indispensable lens on the politics of American religious inequality in 19th century America. And I think in many ways gives us some clues on what's going on today. Yeah. And we'll talk about those clues. I, I, I think it's a great project. I did, as I say, I did not know that Joseph Smith ran for president. I certainly did not know to kind of give a little teaser 
that he was so interested in the protection of religious minorities. I guess it makes perfect sense being a member of a religious minority, but we'll talk about that in due time. Could you begin by setting the stage? And that is give us a kind of brief history of Smith and Mormonism until 1939, when he, as you say, he traveled from Nauvoo to uh, Washington, just a kind of potted history, as the British call it, of Mormonism? Yeah, 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 absolutely. So Joseph Smith, um, born in Vermont, family moves with so many other um, New Englanders. There's this great Yankee invasion of Western New York after the the American Revolution. The Smith family is part of that. And when the Second Great Awakening is going and is really concentrated in the revivals in, in Western New York, Joseph Smith begins wondering about the state of his soul. And he's going to these different religious meetings and he's finally comes to the decision he's going to pray to God to find out which church he should join. And as he tells it in his history, he has a vision of deity. And that's the first of several visions in which he is essentially um, directed to found a church that he teaches is the restored church of Jesus Christ, that it's the, the primitive Christian church restored to his time. Um, he, he, in his history, he talks about being directed by a, an angel to a set of gold plates buried in a local hillside that he translates by the gift and power of God um, to become what we know as the Book of Mormon, a, a companion to the Bible in, in many respects. And this begins Joseph Smith, who in many ways is a very average American, um, doesn't have a, an exceptional level of education, but it leads him to on this path of religious leadership. And people flock by the thousands to this new religion to this new church. Um, there was this thirst, this hunger for, for a religion, for a church. I mean, Mormons are Christian, but this idea of primitive Christianity, they're looking for something beyond the status quo. And they believe they've found it in, in Joseph Smith and the church. Of course, in as much as this still attracted um, converts, it also attracted criticism and violence. And whenever the church would gather in one place, violent opposition, often in the form of mobs, would soon follow thereafter. And part of this was intolerance for their religious belief, but it was always married to fear that Mormons gathering would be too much economic and political power with this religious group. And that's what we see in Missouri. Things really come to a head. And the Mormons are expelled by executive order from the governor of Missouri. And he writes, and this really flies in the face of kind of our idealistic notion of American religious freedom. In 1838, a governor of Missouri writes, the Mormons must be um, driven from the state or exterminated. And, and that's what brings Joseph Smith to Illinois. They rebuild their lives as religious refugees and try to build a haven in the city of Nauvoo a place that they can remain in the United States, but practice their religion in peace. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's, that is an excellent summation. This theme of finding primitive Christianity is something you see again and again in Protestantism. I was raised a Lutheran, so I don't know if that was the first time it happened. It was probably the fifth, but Luther said the same thing. And so this is constantly happening in Christianity, that people are re always returning to the early church. So yeah, there's nothing really unusual about this. Yeah. And in, and in sense, the United yeah. States, there people would go from one of these primitive Christianity groups to another, right? There, there was interchange 
they think, oh, I found primitive Christianity here. Oh, wait, no, there it is over there. There it is over there. And so you do see this movement of people within that that segment. Yeah, yeah. I just wondered, it's, it's, it's a kind of a normal thing for Protestants to do because of the emphasis on the text and things like this to say, we need to return to something because we've strayed. Of course, there's always Catholicism in the background, uh, which is a different kind of thing. So we don't need to go too far down that road. So in, in 1839... Uh, Smith goes to meet Martin Van Buren in Washington. Oh, what did he want? Yeah, so it's interesting because I think the story has often been told in Mormon history circles. You know, Joseph Smith is hoping that Van Buren can provide redress for the Latter-day Saints. Um, and I, I should say Mormons and Latter-day Saints are, are used interchangeably for members of the church. Um, but And that is what Joseph Smith wanted from the federal government. They had had an estimated $2 million um, worth of property that they lost being expelled from Missouri, and they wanted reparations. Um, he goes to Van Buren, hoping that Van Buren will, in his what we call today the State of the Union Address, take the Mormon side, encourage Congress to act. Van Buren, he, he doesn't display any prejudice against the Mormons, but he cites electoral concerns. He says, essentially, um, what can I do? I can do nothing for you. If I come out in favor of you, I'm going to lose the state of Missouri in my reelection bid. And, and and so Van Buren refuses to help. And so their only recourse is Congress. And they go to the U.S. Senate with a petition uh, seeking redress and reparations. Mm-hmm. And, and so uh, after this disappointing meeting with Van Buren, um, he does go on a kind of campaign and you use the word he tries to normalize Mormonism. That's a kind of a tough sell, I would think. But how, how does he do that? How does he try to explain Mormonism or the Church of Latter-day Saints to would-be political patrons and also voters, I suppose? Yeah, it's almost like a public relations campaign. As yeah, that's, what I, that's the word for, I was going to use, yeah. yeah. As Smith is waiting for Congress to make a decision— let me, he goes and tries to explain to the people in, on the East Coast essentially um, what's happened to us to show that the Mormons are victims here. And, and this is the plight of, I think, any religious minority group is to show your commonality with, in this case, pro- mainline Protestantism, to show that actually we have way more in common with you than we don't. And the reason he has to do this is because the way religious freedom worked in the United States in the 19th century is it was this idea that it was primarily for by Protestants for Protestants. And if a group was deemed by mainline Protestants as being too far out there, too different, um, they would be deemed fanatics. And therefore any persecution, any violence was not religious persecution was not religious intolerance because they're not believing that they are a religion. And so Joseph Smith essentially has to make the case to the public, hey, some of our doctrines are different than yours, but at the end of the day, you know, we are Christians and we deserve the same rights and liberties that Protestants enjoy. And I think that's really telling because that's still an issue. Oh, yeah. Um, it doesn't go away. <laughs> no, it doesn't go away at all. No, it's, it's, it still is. And people will talk about religions and pseudo-religions and then the dreaded word cult which turns out to be kind of a religion. <laughs> yeah. And I think anyone that's been in religious history or religious studies, 
rarely if ever uses the word cult or they're yeah. very careful because there's so many implications and unintended implications of that when we're just trying to understand marginalized groups and see the commonalities rather than focus on the differences. Did, did he have any success in trying to explain to mainline Protestants that they had a lot in common? Yeah, I, I think so. Um, you know, some are dismissive. Some would show up out of curiosity to hear him speak. But we have one letter from a man named Matthew Livingston Davis, who had been a member of Congress. He was working as a reporter. Uh, he listened. He wrote a letter to his wife explaining what Joseph Smith had said. And it says, you know, at the end of the day, I have no opinion on the on these religious matters. I, th- I think he was didn't consider himself a very religious person. But he concluded to his wife, um, the Mormons are an injured people deserving protection. They deserve the same rights. And, and so at least in this instance, Joseph Smith was very successful, but, but it was hit and miss. Yeah, no, I can, I can certainly understand that. It is a kind of a tough sell, particularly given the dominance of mainline Protestantism in American political culture at the time. Not that I know a lot about it. Um, could you tell us a little bit about Smith's plans in the building of Nauvoo? Yeah, I call it a city-state on a hill. We have this old Puritan idea of the city on a hill. Joseph Smith wants to show that he can make a city that can live up to the ideals um, of America's founding documents, but also as a haven for his people. So the Mormons are coming to Illinois like the most opportune time in, in some senses. They are religious refugees trying to rebuild their lives. It's hard. But Illinois is evenly split between the Whigs and the Democrats. And so when Joseph Smith brings to the legislature uh, or the Illinois State Assembly a proposed bill for incorporation, a charter, he has put in the city charter all sorts of protections to prevent what happened in Missouri from happening again. Um, it was common for communities to have militias, and Nauvoo was going to have a militia. It was common for there to be habeas corpus ordinances that prevented outsiders from coming in to arrest um, residents of the city, including Joseph Smith. They put in one of the toughest, in some ways most extreme, habeas corpus clauses into their 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 laws that exist in the United States at that time. And the Illinois legislature gladly passes it. Both sides see the Mormons as tipping the scale. The Mormons will continue to be a minority in Illinois, but they will be the kingmakers. They can either sway an election to the Whigs or the Democrats. So you have Democrats such as Stephen A. Douglas, who wasn't yet the famous Stephen A. Douglas, but it is that Stephen A. Douglas who's congratulating the Mormons on this new city and on this new charter. Abraham Lincoln does the same. Um, And so, so yeah, Joseph Smith sees this as a way of the only way we are going to stay in the United States as a persecuted minority is to build a city that can be a haven for us. And, and, And he hopes that it can also demonstrate that it's a haven for all religious minorities passes a city ordinance declaring religious freedom, not just for Christians, but for Jews and for Muslims as well. Now, now the Muslim part was more theoretical. There weren't a lot of American Muslims at that time. Most of them were enslaved in the South. Um, but it's Joseph Smith kind of signaling, this is what an American city should be. Mm-hmm. So you've kind of anticipated my next question and that he's part of a persecuted religious minority. Um, what did he think about other religions and religious Minorities and how did those arguments that he made play in in the in 
in the citizenry and in the press. Yeah, in this sense, Joseph Smith is not entirely atypical of any religious leader. It, you you play up the rightness of your doctrines of why what you're teaching is right compared to what other Christian churches is are teaching is incorrect or flawed. I mean, that happens even in the most forgiving and ecumenical places. There are doctrinal debates and Joseph Smith is not immune from those. Um, he believes very much that the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is the restored church of Jesus Christ. It is primitive Christianity. However, he has some very ecumenical moments, especially when he would be preaching to a non-Mormon audience or a mixed audience. And he would essentially say that if you are following Jesus Christ and then trying to live by the commandments in the Bible, that you will receive salvation. So, so there was an ecumenical side to Joseph Smith. And, and while, yeah, he could be drawn into these doctrinal debates, um, he also showed a willingness to to extend compassion toward other groups. And and one example I'll give is in Nauvoo, Joseph Smith and and the Mormons controlled all the ferries crossing the Mississippi river from Iowa territory. And there in a neighboring County in Illinois, there was a Catholic who was dying and his priest was all the way in Iowa territory. And he did not have the money to get over to this this dying parishioner to administer last rites. And Joseph Smith not only takes care of the ferry um, fare, but provides a horse and, and a carriage to carry this priest to where he needs to go. And I think it's symbolic. It, it shows that if you're only willing to stand up for your own religious freedom, are you really standing up for religious freedom? That if you're actually serious about universal religious freedom, you need to be as willing to stand up for the rights and and to facilitate the worship of other groups, even if you disagree with their doctrine. Yeah, 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 that's well said. So let's move forward a little bit in the chronology. In in 1842, there's an assassination attempt made on Lilburn Boggs, and he's the former governor of Illinois, and suspicion, of course, falls on the Mormons. And can you explain what happens next? And I'm particularly interested in his conflict with John Bennett, John C. Bennett. Um, he was also, uh, that is, Smith was also charged with treason, I think. Can you talk a little bit about what happened there? Yeah. So so in 1842, Lilburn Boggs, this is the governor of Missouri who had ordered the Mormons expulsion under oh, threat governor of, of Missouri. Yeah, I misspoke. Yeah. And someone shoots him. And at first the newspaper reports that he's on death's door and he's not going to survive. Some even report that he's died and Boggs was no longer governor, but he was running for a seat in the state assembly. And uh, first suspicion is on his opponent or a surrogate of one of his opponents. Uh, But then something really interesting happens is a disaffected Mormon, John C. Bennett, who had been excommunicated from the church for seducing women um, is so irate that he wa- has been, you know, he has fallen from power within the Mormon society that he goes on this national kind of anti-Mormon lecture tour to anyone who would listen. He will, it was going to rant about how awful Joseph Smith and the Mormons were. And he makes a claim that Joseph Smith and the Mormons were behind the assassination attempt. Boggs lives. He doesn't die. And with very little other evidence, Boggs swears an affidavit, claims the Mormons are behind this. Let's extradite Joseph Smith to Missouri. 
And Joseph Smith knows that if he goes back to Missouri, he's going to die. He'll either be executed by the state or more likely a mob is going to execute him. So in this setting, there's an attempt to extradite Joseph Smith. And it means Joseph Smith needs to use those habeas corpus laws that are in the charter. He needs to appeal to the governor of the state of Illinois. And that's exactly what they do. And the Illinois Supreme Court has a hearing to hear Joseph Smith's case, not to determine whether or not he was innocent or guilty in the attempted assassination of Boggs, but does Missouri have standing to take Joseph Smith um, back to their state? And ultimately, while Smith maintained his innocence and the courts, his argument was, but even if I was guilty of what they say I'm guilty of, the conspiracy would have occurred in Illinois and not in Missouri. So Missouri has no legal claim on Joseph Smith because the crime they're accusing him of, if he had done it, did not occur in Missouri. This gets Joseph Smith off the hook. It's a great legal triumph, but it gets many in Missouri as determined as ever to get Joseph Smith back, to bring him back to Missouri um, to face a violent end. It also makes many in Illinois a little nervous about the Mormons' power. They're beginning to see Joseph Smith as legally untouchable, and that makes many of them nervous. And so things are still okay for the Mormons in 1842, but you begin to kind of see um, tension that's going to end really badly begin to kind of boil up at that time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So can you discuss Smith's thinking as he decided to run for president, what the context was and uh, why he did it? Yeah. So Joseph Smith ran out of desperation. Um, I think, you know, almost any politician of this day, and even in our own day, they, they like to say, I'm not a political person. I'm not seeking <laughs> power. I'm only doing it because the people are calling me to it. Right. Yeah. Um, so everyone says it, not everyone means it. I really believe though, from all the documents I've read that Joseph Smith meant it. He was genuinely content to just be left to lead his people in peace. Uh, He wasn't able to do that. And so what we talked about with those extradition hearings in 1842, things just get worse. And the Mormons realize they can vote as a block. And when they vote as a block, uh, they can have some say in elections. And so Whigs and Democrats court the Mormon vote, but they begin to be less predictable, less dependable in their block vote. And this makes, in 1843, there's a congressional election after which the Whigs and many of the Democrats have determined they need to expel the Mormons from Illinois, and they're just waiting for their chance to do it. So by the end of 1843, Joseph Smith still wants reparations for what happened in Missouri, but it also looks like things are beginning to get turned bad in Illinois, and he wants protection. And he and other church leaders write to the five men they expected to run for president in 1844. Uh, John C. Calhoun, Lewis Cass, Henry Clay, uh, Martin Van Buren, and Richard Mentor Johnson. And they ask them each, essentially, what will your policy, what will your stance be on protecting us if you're president? The implication being, we will vote for you in large numbers. Yeah. And in this case, it could guarantee the state of Illinois. Only three right back, Cass and Calhoun, both kind of make the same argument. Um, they, they appeal to states' rights and say... Well, we sympathize with you, but the federal government and the president in particular should have no power in this matter. 
And Joseph Smith is essentially saying there's something wrong then with the Constitution and states' rights. If a state can expel us under threat of extermination and the federal government says, I can't help you. In fact, in one instance, he says the states' rights doctrines are what feed mobs. And then, but, and so he was really irked by what Calhoun and Cass wrote, but I think the reply that, and this is just my opinion here, but I think the reply that bothered him most was Henry Clay's and no one wanted to be president more badly in all of American history than maybe Henry Clay. (laughs) He's the perennial presidential candidate and he gives the most politician answer that's ever been given, right? I sympathize with you, but I don't want to go into the office tied with to any promises I made in essentially during the campaign. And I think this really irritates Joseph Smith more because Cass and Calhoun both made principal arguments. Now, Joseph Smith vehemently disagreed with their principle, but at least they had a principle where, where yeah. Clay is just essentially being the politician. And so the Mormons are desperate. And so they determine none of the viable candidates are going to support us. We need to run our own candidate. This is going to raise public awareness for our plight. It might move the platform of the major parties one way or the other. But there also be, seems to be some sense that if we run this campaign right and we get some form of divine intervention, Joseph Smith could become president, even though he was a long shot and in reality was never a serious contender. That's why he gets in the race. Yeah, even though he was a long shot and never a serious contender, that, that reminds me of somebody who became president pretty recently. <laughs> you, 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 that's right. <laughs> um, so, so who knows? So this is, you know, was perhaps the most enlightening part of the book for me because it's, it's at this point that that Smith uh, and his um, fellows have to lay out a platform, what they want to do. And he, he actually explains what, what, what he's going to run on. Can we talk a little bit about that? What was his platform? What did he want to do? Yeah, absolutely. So Joseph Smith... One issue drove him to the to the campaign. The federal government needed to be empowered to protect religious minorities when states failed to do so. We needed to reform the Constitution so that was possible. But he wasn't a one-issue candidate. And he puts together this platform in a pamphlet that they publish and distribute thousands of copies throughout the country called General Smith's Views on the Power and Policy of the, of the United States Government. He called and he begins it with a lamentation of slavery, saying that, you know, the Declaration of Independence declares that all men are created equal. And then in his words, millions of men, women and children are enslaved because the color of skin that covers their souls is different than ours. And but his his plan to end slavery, it's pragmatic and it's kind of novel. It's a massive paid emancipation plan. The federal government is selling all this land in the West. He argues that the, they should take those proceeds and purchase the freedom of every enslaved man, woman, and child in the South. Paid emancipation was not new. For instance, the Quakers had done this for quite some time, but they would do it one enslaved person, maybe two or three at a time. Joseph Smith was calling for it to happen at a massive scale, sponsored and paid for by the federal government. He calls for the closing of the, the country's prisons, its penitentiaries, which were relatively new at this time. Yeah. And they had this idea that they could reform convicted men and women, but mostly men at this time, through solitary confinement and hard labor. And Joseph Smith, he's not the only one saying this, but he makes a convincing point that if we spent, turn them, close the prisons, turn them into seminaries of learning or schools, right? Better educate the public. 
and and think of criminal justice not about punishment so much as it is about reform because he's essentially arguing that the prison system that existed then was not reforming convicted men and women but creating a permanent criminal class i I've think heard that i've heard that before yeah that that issue hasn't gone away <laughs> yeah no yeah. it still exists um, he calls for the establishment of a new national bank. And this had long been a hot button issue. There had been two na- national banks before this. He wanted to stabilize the United States economy, which was going through almost a predictable cycle of great booms and devastating busts. But he wanted this to be different than the other banks of, of the United States. No one was going to get rich from this bank. Those who ran it would be paid $2 a day as a salary. There would be no investors that are looking to enrich themselves. The bank would solely be a public service to stabilize the economy for Americans. He called for the expansion of of the, the territorial reach of the United States to annex Texas to take all of the Oregon country, to spread all the way to the Pacific Ocean, and in due time, even into Canada and Mexico. Mm. Uh, he calls for... He calls for the end of debtor's prison as part of his, his criminal justice reform movement. Um, and, and so he's putting together this, oh, and he calls for an empowered federal government, but he wants to shrink the size of Congress. And I don't think he's thinking in terms of democratic representation. I think he was thinking in terms of, I've been to Congress. I see what they do here. They are wasting time and money. Let's cut their pay and shrink their size. <laughs> I've heard that before too. That's right. So Joseph Smith is essentially got, runs this very progressive, in some ways radical and idealistic, other ways pragmatic and even sometimes naive platform. But it's a platform of compassion toward groups on the margin. Let's have the American political system work for everybody. And, and he puts it forth in a pamphlet, and it's 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 a radical vision for the United States. That's fascinating. Um, I'm particularly interested in his thoughts about the relation between church and state because I, I don't think this is the wrong word, but he was a millenarian. He thought the end was coming and that the kingdom of Christ was if not at hand, pretty darn quick. What did he think about church and state? And what did he think government would look like after the kingdom of Christ was established on earth? Yeah. So while I think Joseph Smith was very genuine and sincere in all yeah. the um, proposals, and, and there's a personal connection to many, there was also something probationary about it. The sense that when Jesus Christ returns as prophesied in the Bible, um, this millennial era would feature the kingdom of God on earth as the governing body. And so this would all be kind of a moot point in due time. But Joseph Smith begins thinking in Nauvoo about what this millennial government's going to look like and forms a group called the Council of 50. And eventually, uh, initially the Council of 50 was formed to consider, do we move out of the United States? to get around these states' rights problems, this persecution? Do we move to Texas? But very quickly, it becomes a conversation about millennial government. What will a government in the millennial era look like? And and, and there's some radical ideas thrown out there. He presents this idea of theodemocracy, which in many ways looks like a theocracy of of God ruling, you know, God ruling through his prophets. 
Um, but it's Joseph Smith has this idea of kind of mixing democracy with that. And so it's fascinating. We don't know exactly what it would look like because at the end of the day, the, the minutes of that secret organization, it's a lot of debate and talking and throwing out ideas. Joseph Smith actually appears as one of the more moderate members of that group. Brigham Young and others are kind of throwing out these ideas. Like, I guess we can have a constitution if we need to. Yeah. Um, and, and so, yeah, you have a lot of different opinions. So it's, it's impossible to know exactly what they envision this looking like in the millennium, but they're talking about it. Yeah. Yeah. Because they strictly believed and genuinely believed that the end was coming and that Christ would return. This was yeah. not, yeah, this was, they really felt this. And this is the exact same time when William Miller um, was leading an Advent, Adventist movement, and he had predicted the exact date that Jesus would yeah. return. And so it's in that time. No, the Mormons aren't making such precise predictions, but they believe that it is imminent and their role is to prepare the world for the second coming. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's fascinating. And very, very, I find it very, very interesting. Um, so a presidential candidate needs a vice presidential candidate. How did, who, who did, how did Smith get somebody else on the ticket? Yeah, this ended up being really difficult and they wanted someone that had some prominence um, that they could be a Mormon, but they wanted to be prominent beyond their Mormonism. And the first person they reach out to is a man named James Arlington Bennett. He lives on Long Island. He had joined the church, but had never kind of gathered with the Latter-day Saints. And, and there's some question about how sincere he was uh, in his conversion, but, but ultimately he did it. And it's not my role as a historian to question somebody's conversion, the, the, the genuineness of their professions. Um, but he was famous for having published one of the most popular bookkeeping books in North <laughs> America and even in um, Great Britain. And so he ha- has some level of prominence. He's not a great political leader, but they, let's, let's ask him. And he, he's inclined to say, yes, he doesn't think it, the campaign has much of a chance, but he sees the merits of a kind of the public relations of it raise American awareness to the plight of the Mormons. And, and this is just so 19th century America though. What happens is the Latter-day Saints find out that Bennett was actually born in Ireland and therefore ineligible. And when they write him about this and, and they move on to another person, Bennett actually says, well, technically I was born in the United States, but when I was getting a copyright for my accounting book, there was kind of some misinformation out there that I was Irish born. And I just didn't correct them mm-hmm. because it helped him get a copyright. Yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> anyway, they move on to a man named Solomon Copeland, who's a state assemblyman in, in, Tennessee. His wife is a Mormon, but he's also an enslaver, which is fascinating for a campaign that is promoting the end of slavery. They ask a slave owner to participate. And and interestingly enough, two of the enslaved men um, that that the the Copelands enslaved had also converted to Mormonism. Mm -hmm. They never hear back from him. And so eventually they get desperate. And they look to one of Joseph Smith's closest um, religious leaders in the church, Sidney Rigdon. And he had been a, a follower of, of Alexander Campbell prior to joining Mormonism. And he was originally from Pennsylvania. And they say, Sidney, go back to Pennsylvania, reestablish your residency and join me on the ticket. 
and he does. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it, it doesn't go smoothly. And I don't think Sidney Rigdon wasn't their first choice. He ended up just being the most convenient choice and he agrees to join the ticket. Yeah. Now, of course, Smith has no party. So this raises the question, how did he campaign? Yeah. And this is at a moment when presidential campaigning was at a tipping point. It had been slowly changing from this facade of disinterested candidates, right? Where you don't say you want to run for office. You just accept it as the people's call, even though secretly you have this ambition. And and that had been changing drastically in the 1830s and into the 1840s. It still was not okay for a candidate to go make stump speeches. You still relied on surrogates to do it for you. Um, But more and more, the candidates were directing the actions of the surrogates. But Joseph Smith had an advantage that third party or independent candidates at that time did not generally have. He had a core of experienced missionaries mm-hmm. who know how, knew how to travel the country without purser script and to preach religion. And he essentially just called them to go out and preach politics. And he gave them his, his campaign tract and sent them out to electioneer to canvas the whole country, to hold nominating conventions um, in every state. And, and even in New York City on Printer's Row there in, in lower Manhattan to establish a campaign newspaper called The Prophet. And all this is going on. And so he actually has, for an independent candidate running outside the two major um, parties, as robust uh, a campaign movement as anyone could have imagined. Um, again, he's still not going to win this election. Right. But it's this pivotal moment in... Joseph Smith is very much a part of the advance, rapid advancement of what presidential campaigns look like at this time. Did, how was how were these surrogates received? Do we know anything about that? Yeah, you know they had some success, but but mostly they were going to like their native state. So if they were you know originally from New York, they'd go to New York and meet with family and friends there, try to win them over. A lot of them dismissed them, just the same way that they would dismiss Mormonism. Um, one of my favorite examples, and I. I love stories about Boston and kind of unruly crowds in Boston. Um, Brigham Young is leading a, a convention in Boston and they are interrupted by hecklers to the point that they cannot continue the meeting. The police are called and the whole meeting ends in a fight, not between the hecklers and the Mormons, but the hecklers begin a brawl with the police. Yeah. And so you'd have incidents like this. Um, but, but, but there were some people that they weren't taking Joseph Smith's candidacy seriously, but they took some of his ideas and at least engaged with some of the ideas. Um, but one of my favorite stories is the missionaries who went to Tennessee and they were sometimes confronted by sheriffs or even mobs, not because they were Mormon, but because Joseph Smith's pamphlet called for the end of slavery. Mm Mm-hmm. And it was illegal to distribute anti-slavery literature in the mm-hmm. South at this time. Yeah. And that caused a lot of problems for it. And you see that most of the success is happening. And there's not a lot of success, but there's more mission, electionary missionaries, more success happening in the Northern states than in the Southern states, as you would imagine with an anti-slavery yeah. camp campaign. So to jump forward a little bit, not too far, this comes to a kind of tragic not a kind of tragic, a tragic end in Carthage, Illinois, on in June 1844, when uh, Smith is murdered or assassinated 
Um, can you explain why and how that occurred? Yeah. So uh, it's interesting. Joseph Smith has a distinction, a distinction no one wants of being the first assassinated presidential candidate in yeah. American history. Now the asterisk next to that is from all that I can tell in surviving documents, no one that called for or um, helped carry out the murder of Joseph Smith was doing so to stop him from becoming president. Mm -hmm. He wasn't killed because he was running for president, but he was assassinated while running. So, so that's the asterisk onto that. It was actually local concerns. Um, Starting in 1843, there was a determined group of anti-Mormons an an actual party called the anti-Mormon party. And they want to kick the Mormons out of Illinois. They want to wage war against the Mormons. They're just waiting for their chance. And they get it in June 1844 when some some dissenters from the Mormon church, they leave the church, they stay in Nauvoo, and they set up an anti-Mormon newspaper in the headquarters, essentially, you know, the, the home base of Mormonism in Nauvoo, Illinois, threatening to expose Joseph Smith and, and, and to, to criticize his teachings. He was quietly practicing polygamy. They were going to expose that. They were going to criticize his mixing of religion and politics. This newspaper has one issue. Joseph Smith is mayor of Nauvoo. He goes to the city council and citing English common law that was also adopted in many places in the United States, that the newspaper represented a public nuisance and the city council orders its destruction. This leads to a massive outcry throughout this part of the state. Um, Joseph Smith declares martial law in the city, calls up the Nauvoo Legion, their militia, to to stand ready to protect the city. And ultimately, the governor comes in and and convinces Joseph Smith that he needs to give himself up. That's the best way to do it. He he doesn't want to do it initially, but Joseph Smith and his brother Hiram submit to arrest. Um, Others are arrested as well. But extra charges are are levied against Joseph and Hiram Smith of treason because of this declaration of martial law. And and what becomes really clear is while while a case could have been made against them for having this newspaper destroyed, the treason charge appears pretty trumped up in a way of, if you're charged with treason, you can't post bail. And that's going to keep Joseph and Hiram Smith in their prison cells, sitting ducks for an armed mob. And that's exactly what happens. An armed mob with their faces painted black of somewhere between 100 and 150 men storms the jail and kills both Joseph and Hiram Smith on June 27th, 1844. I was interested in this detail about their faces painted black. Why is that? Do we know? And, uh, to disguise their identity. Yeah. yeah. And, and and I guess to some extent it might work, but also, you know, they were still able to those who were witnesses to the crimes were able to kind of put together a list of people they suspected were members of the mob. It's not a perfect. And were there any charges brought against the perpetrators? There were. And uh, six men ultimately were charged and the trial, and there's a whole book about the trial um, that is a good read because it, it really is kind of a sham of a trial. Mm-hmm. Now I say that from perhaps a, a sympathetic view of Smith but I think any legal scholar is going to look at this and say there's something wrong about this trial. The jury selection, dismissing one jury for another mid-trial, things like that. Mm-hmm. Essentially, um, it seemed from the very beginning that the the accused were going to get away with it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I have two questions, follow-ups on his assassination. One is, 
uh, how was news of Smith's death viewed by his opponents? Yeah. So, I mean, there were some who had called for it. Um, some of his enemies in Hancock County that rejoiced, they saw this as a good thing. Um, again, they didn't see it as religious persecution. They did not see themselves as bigots. They saw the Mormons as a pretend religion, as too fanatical, too far out to deserve American religious freedom. And so there was a celebration. There were others that were shocked and they weren't necessarily Joseph Smith's opponents, but they weren't necessarily friendly either. When word gets to Springfield, Illinois, there's kind of a shock that this can't have happened. And it's at the same time that words getting to, to Springfield, Illinois, about the Philadelphia Bible riots where Catholics are being killed and their properties burned. And it's just kind of this, as they're celebrating this exceptional level of American freedom, it's kind of a reminder that no, that doesn't exist for everybody. But I think the most, perhaps the most unfeeling response was from Alexander Campbell, a kind of a rival preacher who also preached a, a pr- restoration of primitive Christianity. And he essentially, while he lamented the violence said essentially that Smith deserved it because they were a threat to democracy. Did any of the other presidential candidates weigh in on his no, murder? There doesn't, not that I've ever seen. I don't, I don't see any written record of, of what they said about it. Yeah, I see. So then my second question is, uh, how was news of Smith's death received and reacted to by Mormons? Yeah, oh, it devastated them. Just absolutely devastated the city. They they viewed Joseph Smith not just as the president of their church, but as a prophet. This similar to Moses or Abraham uh, in the Old Testament. And and it just there was just he was beloved and it just crushed them. Um and even harder were the electioneering missionaries, because even though the Mormons sent word out to them, news traveled faster than the Mormon couriers, and some of them didn't believe the news. And, and I get it, because news, rumors like this spread all the time. But, oh, there's these accounts of, from Brigham Young and others of when they found out of just weeping and weeping, and then they make their way back, and essentially the campaign's over. Let's get back to Nauvoo. Let's shore up the church. Let's make sure we can keep our people together in this time of tragedy. Yeah. So a quick follow-up. How does this relate to the decision by Brigham Young, I think, to to camp and go to the Utah Territory? Yeah. So the Mormons don't leave Illinois right away, but there had been conversation even before Joseph Smith died of leaving the United States, that the United States was not going to protect us. We need to go find our, our freedom, our peace elsewhere. Again, I have to say, this is an old Protestant trope. That's why the pilgrims ended up here. Yeah. This idea that this country that claims to be yeah. a bastion of freedom is not. Yeah. And, but I think for Brigham Young, it became that was the tipping point that we're not staying in the United States. They don't leave right away. They have to make preparations. They were building a temple in Nauvoo they wanted to finish. And so it's not till, until 1846 that they begin to leave. But when they leave Illinois for what today is Utah, they believed they were leaving the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and maybe irony of ironies by the time they're really settling the, the Salt Lake Valley in the Utah Territory, the Mexican-American War has happened and they are back in the United States. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They try to outrun history, but history outruns them. Doesn't yeah, it outrun right. us all, really? Um <clears throat> So what can we learn today about Smith's presidential bid and how, how is it relevant today, if you might speculate a little bit? 
Yeah, for me at least, I, I think it it it's an uncomfortable story in some ways because yeah. we love these these celebratory accounts of American history, and especially when we talk about religious freedom. And, and in many ways, what the United States did from its founding on was exceptional. They, they did have a higher level of religious freedom and toleration than existed in many other places of the world, and we do today. Um, but it's we're fooling ourselves if we tell our say that it's total and universal. It's very clear that for many minority religious groups, American religious freedom remains a myth. And what Joseph Smith was trying to point out is, yes, the fight is against prejudice and bigots, but there are also systems of governance that uphold and embolden prejudice and bigotry. Uh, in this case, it's the state's rights doctrine. There is nothing religious about the state's rights doctrine. It, this whole notion of state's rights has nothing to do with religion, but in its implementation had a discriminatory effect. And while that may not be the pressing issue today, um, in many, or at least not in the same way it was in 1844, I think Joseph Smith's story makes us ask a couple questions. One, are we as willing to protect the rights of others as we are to protect our own? And second, are there policies, are there philosophies of governance, are there parties or politicians that we support that on the surface that has nothing to do with prejudice or bigotry, but in the implementation of these policies, these laws, they have a discriminatory effect. It's a call for us to be reflective of the things we support. And maybe we would never be discriminatory against a person of a minority religious group in our interpersonal interaction. But are there policies and things that we support that have that effect? And, and we need to ask ourselves those questions. I, I did say in the pre-interview that, you know, one of the things that is fundamental, I think, to American political culture is precisely this notion that we protect minorities. That, that is what we are supposed to do. Yeah, and it's a, it's an it's an interesting tension, right? Because those who are in power will often look to minorities calling for rights as a threat to democracy, but what they really mean is it's a threat to their power in democracy. Yet, yet minority groups often have to go to these kind of odd, dramatic gestures or attempts just to get attention to say look, there's something wrong here, right? And, and so, yeah, we have this country, this, this idea of majority rule, my, minority have rights, but that tension never leaves and, and, it, and it's present even to this day. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's very insightful. And, and it is, it's a permanent tension in our political culture, I think. So but anyway, thank you very much for talking to us about the terrific book. We have a traditional final question on the New Books Network, and that is, what are you working on now? Yeah, you know, I, I've. It's difficult when you're working on one book. I think almost every author can tell you that you get new ideas, but you have to finish the books, the book you're working on. And and so I have a lot of ideas for future books, but I have one that I've been working on for a while. It's a documentary history of New York's burned over district. And my my friend and fellow historian Jen, Jennifer Dorsey at Siena College, we're working on this together. It's going to present this history of the religious revivalism and social reform movements that were so concentrated in 19th century New York. We're going to, we're going to tell that history through a kind of a curated selection of documents. And so, you know, we're hard at work at, at finishing over? that. Yeah. The, the working just, title is, is called the New- burned over region. What's it? Yeah. Uh, the burned over district. I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah. 
Well, good luck on that. And, you know, we'd love to have you back on when the book's out. That would be great. That sounds great to me. Okay, good. Let me tell everybody that we have been talking to Spencer McBride about his book, Joseph Smith for President, The Prophet, The Assassins, and the Fight for American Religious Freedom, out from Oxford University Press. I'm Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. Spencer, thanks for being on the show. Oh, thank you. It was my pleasure.